You're listening to The Portable Foodie. My name is Paris, from The Portable Foodie. Food is central to my life. Eating, cooking, preparing, cogitating, criticising or philosophising. It's all here. Along with my daily life, my family and friends. Food brings us all together. Books. Christmas cookery. Leftovers. A good stock. And Mexico. Books. My mother would take one evening aside to cover the big dining table in the kitchen with all the ingredients necessary to make the Christmas puddings and the Christmas cake. She would always ask me to look out the faded blue linen-bound cookbook and turn it to the dirty page where the occasional flattened current would still reside from last year's efforts. It was hastily written on two sheets of blue Belvedere Bond writing paper also neatly folded into the book. This year I received no fewer than two copies of two different cookery books as Christmas presents. Please understand, I am grateful. A cookery book is, after all, a surefire present for any keen cook. This year's latest Jamie, Rick or Nigella. That year's popular cuisine or the book of the restaurant and or TV series. But, with the possible exception of Heston Blumenthal, none are quite so loved and made so much use of as those few you bought either at the beginning or around the time where you gradually settled on your own style of cooking and cuisine. That moment when your mind can easily recall your favourite spices by scent alone. That moment when you finally bring your own confidence into the kitchen. I have a horribly bespattered copy of Rick Stein's French Odyssey, a carefully sellotaped together paperback of Elizabeth David's, still bursting with Mediterranean sun, bought from a charity shop many moons ago. A copy of Jacques Papin's La Technique, that whilst looking perfect on the outside, must be a huge breeding ground for bacteria inside. Its pages of step-by-step technique have borne the brunt of more inappropriately flying food, wine and even blood in a few places than I care to think. I wasn't brought up to see books as sacred items. They were essential tools to be used. Their pages free to be thumbed, folded, creased and stained in the pursuit of consuming their contents. I still hold true to that and secretly enjoy the soft patina of history and age that it brings to my collection. I have a notebook of recipes I take with me on all our self-catering holidays, which is to say most of them. It is the most battle-scarred of all and also my most treasured. It has a slight grittiness to some pages from the sand of the West Indies and a dog-eared corner from a wine spillage in the Loire Valley in France. My mum has a similar approach to her literature and none more so than her cookery books. And you'd always get the um, cookery book out. Yeah. And do you remember, it, it was, was blue, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, it was manky. Yeah. All the good... I remember saying to you, if you ever have this, all the manky pages are good recipes, yeah, yeah. They'd be, and there'd be pudding on them, and there'd be, you know, my handprint everywhere. And there was there was no, but there weren't the pudding recipes on a piece of Belvedere Bond? Um, yes. You know, I think they were um, blue Belvedere Bond. Granny, Granny gave me the cookery book when I first got married, um, and. I never, I, I loved it. Uh, it would tell you 
anything you needed to know. You know, it, it was brilliant. And it, the thing was, it showed you a picture, so you knew what you were aiming for. Supposed to end up with, yeah. But I used to use an awful lot of, when I was first married, um, a lot of recipes from that book. You know, making Indian pie and um, Dutchess potatoes and... Like a lot of domestic cooks in the 70s and 80s, my mother possessed only a handful of cookery books, perhaps 10 or 12, bought, borrowed, handed on and down. Accompanying these were scraps of paper and envelope backs, scribbled with recipes, seen or heard on the radio and TV, or given by friends. All these were used more as an aid memoir than anything else. In a rural small holding on the west coast of Ireland, several miles from the nearest shop, cooking was done with what you had rather than what you wanted or could get. Unless there was a dinner party coming up, then the only other time in a year when a recipe book would be seen on the kitchen table was in late November, when it came time to make both the Christmas cake and the puddings. Christmas cookery. Of all my childhood memories, None is so sweet and fondly recalled as this day. It would be early evening. Dinner would be finished early. The kitchen would be cleaned and our massive dining table cleared and covered with a rough cloth. Ingredients and scales at one end, cooking equipment, spoons and cloths at the other. I can still recall that wonderful smell of Christmas cake batter, candied fruits, raisins, brandy, and other otherwise unseen ingredients. With the radio tuned to Radio 4, always Radio 4, Mum, hair tied back, and me, difficult child, for once compliant, standing behind the scales at the other end of the table, always. awaiting instructions. It would be one evening, everyone else would be settled in the kitchen, in the sitting room, and my job was to weigh, my job was to weigh things out, and it would be like a winter's night, and you'd have, I mean, our table sat 12 people? Oh yeah, easy. Easy, 12, 16 easy, people. Yeah. And um, you'd have the whole dining table with yeah. all the ingredients literally covering it, and then at one end, at the stairs end, there'd be the sort of magnolia... Uh, imperial Avery scales that we'd have that used to go right. clonk yeah. and you have those beautiful brass weights and the iron weights yep. and you'd always get the um, cookery book out because I didn't make them in a bowl I made them um, it had to be greaseproof paper and you put the mix in and then you Insulated, and I used to put tin foil then. That's right. Yeah. And then um, screw that all up, and then uh, pillowcase, and then tie. Do you remember what did we put in it? Was it was it twenty p pieces? Um, I'd put. No, they were too big. Cause they were big. Um, a button, a piece of a stick. No, there was a piece of string. I remember getting the string one year. Uh, um, why, why did we put that in? A sixpence. A sixpence. Or, or, was it, it was an old sixpence. Yeah, an old it was, sixpence. Was yeah. it, what? No, you're, you're thinking of a threatening bit. But I remember I talked to you and we, we had to be careful not to talk too much because 
you would lose your place or I would distract you and you'd say we would talk and you it would be absolutely quiet you would be there at the other end of the table and you'd you and you'd say right eight ounces of x and I'd weigh it out but I couldn't take it to you until you're ready to have it and you say right and I would stand there absolutely quiet and for me because it was always the one bit that I really loved was you get half your mix ready and then you put the preserved fruits or the chopped fruits, whatever they were, mm. over everything else in this big mixing bowl that we had. That, yeah, and then you pour then you'd pour the brandy over it. And it was the point that you poured the brandy over it, you got this sudden sense that it was Christmas because yes. you get this huge fruity aroma and sort of carroty. Leftovers. I can still vividly recall one of the most gourmand moments of my life in which leftovers featured. We were sharing a large house with two other couples. I had awoken early one Boxing Day morning and padded downstairs for a quiet cup of tea with just the company of the Christmas tree, which I've always thought is the best way to spend Christmas. The kitchen still smelled of Christmas cooking, the sitting room of pine, chocolate and orange peel. Whilst waiting for the kettle to boil, I spied the large remainder of my sous vide beef, still ruby red in the centre and dark, dark black on the outside. I cut a single thick sliver and placed this with a little horseradish sauce in between two thick pillows of white bread and ate it in front of the television. It was about 20 minutes after this that another member of the household crept down, a good friend of mine. I was caught, clad only in boxer shorts and t-shirt, with a large platter containing a joint of roast beef, carving knife and a jar of horseradish sauce, in front of an episode of Top Gear. I was having the most fantastic time. To my joy, they elected to join me, at first with a cup of coffee, and then with the remains of two bottles of rough wine, whose taste had really improved after a day in the kitchen. Together we demolished the remainder of beef in a mixture of thin slices and large, hacked chunks, talking softly into the full morning light. We discussed the simple and the complex, the insignificant and the difficult to say, the hurt and the pleasure. It was the very best of times, with the very best of food. I shall never forget it. A good stock. A good stock is the heartland of any autumnal cooking. I can't tell you exactly how I make one, as I take a holistic approach to mine. A good day to make a stock is one where I am largely at home most of the day, but have plenty to keep me out of the kitchen, because I don't particularly enjoy the slightly wet dog aroma of a simmering stock. But you still need to keep a good weather eye on the pot, so having a stock on the go whilst you go about other things, even if it is only watching back-to-back -back episodes of the Aneedon line, leaves you somehow imbued with a sense of virtue and purpose. My stock will have only the time I have available to give it, possibly gathering a few additional items throughout the day, say a sprig of rosemary from the bush by the library that I continue to shamelessly plunder, or remains of chopped veg. But there are rules. I never, ever allow my stock to boil. A slow, slow simmer is just fine. Jamie Oliver describes it as blipping away, and hard as I try, 
I cannot think of a better way to describe it. After shifting from foot to foot, peering into the pot for that first blip, I leave it alone for a few hours. If it boils, even if only for a moment, the flavour is damaged, dulled somehow, in the same way as if corn flour had been added to a sauce. For my stock, I use only hard veggies, carrots, parsnips, onions, etc. Maybe a stray leek. Generally, whatever is dying at the bottom of my veg box. Anything that will not break down and cloud the stock too much. I never season with salt and pepper. A basic stock should be a blank canvas. The stock I am making at the moment is pig's foot. Each one a bargain 20 pence from Porky Downs in Exmouth. I had to suppress a giggle from the sounds of soaring coming from the back of the shop. I'd asked for three, but the butcher gave me a fourth free because he couldn't bear to hang the carcass back up with just one remaining leg. The ability of just one pig's trotter to solidify a whole litre of liquid, if not more, still amazes me. Though the resultant stock isn't as versatile as some, it has some wonderful qualities that others just don't have. A few farting, gluttonous spoonfuls lifted from the jar into an almost finished risotto bring a wonderful velvety body and mouthfeel. It also works to remove sharp and bitter notes and gravy. I never make vegetable stock unless I have suddenly come into a lot of vegetable leftovers, which almost never happens. Of course, a stock should not be all about using leftover ingredients. Stock can easily make or break a dish, so it's worth sometimes investing in the odd ingredient to get that flavour going. A few chunks of inexpensive oxtail can transform a beef stock. Half a teaspoon of tomato puree can bring so much more life to a vegetable stock. Mexico. The weather was glorious, the hotel lovely, and the trimaran sailing, a day I shall treasure for the rest of my life. But the food I shall not. I'm not a fan of Mexican food, a cuisine born out of generations of poverty and struggle, which appeared to be still the case in the kitchens of our hotel. Each night we would fortify ourselves with several large drinks at the beach bar before venturing into the dining room. For a change one night, we went to their more upscale La Bamba restaurant, where we were told reservations were essential. It was bad, really bad. Like a bad facsimile of European oak cuisine, made with scraps and presented like someone had momentarily seen in a book and described to the chef. I had a beautiful, plump piece of red snapper that was rendered spongy as it was saturated in so much old cooking oil that a pressed fork released enough oil to cover the plate. Carl chose squid, which I can only describe to you as being served, rolled up like a calanoni tube, and then covered in a grey-brown sauce. Once you got past the grotesque burst toilet drain appearance, the taste was actually okay. But your main dish shouldn't leave you emotional and stressed. As our holiday came to an end, we ventured back into La Bamba one last time. We'd reasoned that because the wine was better, it had to be worth going. So we sat once again amongst a sea of deserted tables to have one more crack at the daily menu that hadn't changed from our first visit. It was worse. 
even though we attacked the wine before, during and after, it was still bad to the bone. I wasn't going to include this except as the audio quality was so bad for my iPhone. But it still makes me giggle so much, I just had to. You can certainly tell we've been drinking. And now, I couldn't taste the shark in that. Cupcakes are dead. I couldn't even taste the um, taco shell. It was very brittle, wasn't it? It was just like, I have no words to describe. Cardboard were hard. Harder and crunchy. Yeah. It was kind of like, on a part of Tesco value tortilla chips. Yeah. It tasted of, but I'm getting. I'm getting get that processed grated cheese, but even drier. I'm getting that. Very cheap cheese. Very cheap cheese. Um, a little bit of heat. The lettuce. Yeah, I've got a bit of heat. There's some, some bit of heat, but chipotle tastes off. There was there was a lovely drizzle of some sort of oil with something in it, but that was just. It was really weird for something that supposedly had shark. If it's got shark in it, that should be the starring ingredient. Yeah, I mean, if this was a star, it, it should be an open taco shell, rather than looking like a cigar. So you can actually see why it is stuck. As a normal taco oh, I thought that was the one. No, but then at least, look, because half of your, like, taste buds are on what you see. We can actually see the shark, so it wasn't like it was a new experience. We knew it was there, but because we can taste it or anything, it, for me, it had a star ingredient of shark that just wasn't there. It was like ordering a birth. We were expecting Jaws and we got flounder. We didn't even get fish. We just got a slightly... This is my problem with Mexican food. It's all sludge. Sludge. Brown sludge, red sludge, yellowish sludge. Yeah, but in a, in a crispy, deep-fried sludge. You've been listening to The Portable Foodie, where there is always time for good food. If you've enjoyed this episode to any extent, then do my ego two small favours by clicking on the subscribe button and telling a friend. Questions and comments are welcomed.